Chapter 3 Alishar broke the silence between them. You're sure there was nothing happening today? I never said that. You were the one who said it'd be okay. And it will be. Relax. It probably has nothing to do with us. But we should get back ju- just to be safe. Exactly. Get back now and they'll never know the difference. They gathered up the stray arrows and deposited them, with the bow, back into the bonewood hollow. Then they raced through the forest, vaulting over treacherous undergrowth on their way back to town. When they emerged onto the foothills, Shale's attention drew north, where through the bell tower arch, the copper bell swung back and forth. A crowd were gathered at the foot of the monastery steps. There were hundreds of them. Everyone in town must have been concentrated into that throng. Their collective attention was locked on the closed, ornate doors of the monastery vestibule. Alishar gasped. Shale spun around to the south, to face the direction he was looking. Then she saw it too. Beyond the inns and taverns, floating in the harbour, was the biggest ship she'd ever seen. It cast a shadow over the entire southern quarter of town. It had to be ten times bigger than any other present vessel, and three times bigger than those large trading cogs that brought spices from Centauro once a year. The wood gleamed with fresh white paint, and a drawn sail ruffled gently in the breeze. Emblazoned upon the hull of the mammoth structure was a sigil that plunged her heart into melting frost. It was a golden rose, framed upon a black shield. The Kursaja, Alishar whispered. Eleven, what's going on? I have no idea, but we need to get back. Come on then, stay close together. They raced through the town centre, where the crowd was so dense that they had to shove and squirm to make any progress. This brought on several glares and chastisements from the townsfolk, but they ignored these and rounded into the alleyway to the side of the monastery. Once they found the right spot, Alishar knelt and pushed a loose slab. He was so panicked that he managed to find extra strength, enough to free it without Shale's assistance. He wriggled through the open square and she followed. The cramped storage room reeked of rotten paper, tallow fat and damp wood which was even more evident after the sweet smells of the forest. They replaced the slab and crawled to the door, nearly knocking over rows of books and candelabra in the process. Once they passed through the door, they clattered down the corridor as fast as their legs would allow. The walls were trembling from the tolling of the bell. Beneath it, they could hear a gaggle of voices emanating from the prayer room. They never got the chance to discuss their next move. Their decision was made for them by the figure emerging from the room to cut them off. San Mother Zira's face was the shade of beetroot, contrasting comically against the gentle colours of her sky-blue robe. Sheil would have found it amusing were she not so deathly afraid. Where in the name of Tarshara were the two of you? Sheil and Alishar exchanged a glance, likely sharing the same thought. Why, for the love of the Eleven, hadn't they taken a minute to invent an excuse? Alishar quickly began constructing a convoluted alibi on how they'd been in the study but had to visit the library to source the correct text and when they'd failed to locate it among the stacks they had to check the storage room. It was a rather impressive lie for it being entirely improvised. Although it still didn't explain why they'd failed to respond to the bell it did cover why they were untraceable to a specific room and why they'd come from this side of the corridor. Shale remained quiet for fear that if she spoke She'd contradict the story. Oh, stop your blathering, boy, Sandmother Zira said, interrupting him as he began explaining what they'd been studying. Don't you think you've kept us waiting long enough? 
I... She caught his wrist in a vice grip. You will come with me to the prayer room this instant. She half turned away before the afterthought of shale occurred to her. Her watery eyes focused. As for you, girl, you will go to your dorm this second. We will exchange words later. Somehow, shale imagined few words being spoken in such an exchange. San Mother Zira dragged Alishar into the prayer room like a dragon, hauling a smoldering deer carcass into its den. Shale was rooted to the spot. Perhaps the smart thing to do would be to retreat to her dorm and count her blessings, but that would mean abandoning her friend to take the majority of the blame. And while it had been his idea initially, he'd only suggested it to cheer her up. Had their roles been reversed, she was certain he would stand by her. So despite any risk of further punishment, honour compelled her to do the same. She approached the prayer room. The door was still off the latch, meaning she could ease it open and peer through the gap. The sight within took her aback. Standing in the aisle, between the pews, were three rows of light boys, making twenty-four in total. They stood abreast, straight-backed, and draped in their formal robes, apart from Alishar, who still wore his casual tunic and breeches, which were still muddy from the woods. What in the name of Bragan was going on? Why had they lined up every light boy in the monastery, as if to be treated like cattle? Easing the door open further, Shale spied the three most senior sand mothers. Lurian, Matiera and Zira also stood in the aisle, but neither they nor the light boys were the strangest sights. It was the nine others that were so out of place in this simple room. Eight of them dorned ornate steel plates and winged steel helms. Gilded white cloaks flowed over their shoulders, clasped around their necks by a golden rose. The most magnificent thing about their attire were their huge Salmanian greatswords, sheafed across their backs. There they stood, like giants, ready for battle, as if ripped right from the pages of a storybook, the Kursaja. The ninth man wore no armour or cloak. He wore boots and gloves of black satin and a white linen overcoat, which fell to his knees. A golden rose was embroidered upon the left side of his chest, over his heart, and there was a second golden rose on the pommel of his Salmanian sword, which was a one-handed version, sheathed to his hip. That marked him as one of the members of the Hikari Council. Judging by his short curly brown hair, well-grimmed beard, and tanned skin, he could only be Mastari Farandarder, youngest of the seven Mastari. He perfectly matched the description. The legendary jouster, who'd unhorsed Malvin the half-giant, approached the Sand Mothers. His exact words were inaudible from where Shale stood, but whatever he said caused the seniors to explode into raucous laughter. What a nauseating sight. The old crones acted like it wasn't the first time any of them had so much as cracked a smile in the better part of a century. Yes, San Mother Zira said in a louder voice, that's all of them now. Excellent. Mastari Farron slapped his hands together and marched in a line in front of the light boys. The way they regarded him was as if one of the eleven Hikari gods walked among them. You all appear quite surprised to see us in your midst. This pleases me. It means our secret has been well kept. So right to the business of the matter. I trust you are all well versed in your Hikari histories. There was a murmur of assent. Then you will know of the fractured age, when the Kursaja fought a great war against the Magizaira for rule of Elorona. The light boys nodded. Of course they did. Everyone knew of that period. The Fractured Age was arguably the most famous era of Hikari history. You will of course know that we won, 
but something that is sadly neglected from modern retellings of the age as a most vital turning point. But we still have the old texts and the Ariafelum vaults, and we remember. Many of you will have heard of the Treaty of Unification, but there is a lesser-known bolstering of strength that came before that, termed the Call of Light. There came many confused mothers to this. She'll share their puzzlement. While she wasn't the most educated light child, the fractured age was her speciality. It had the most interesting stories of blood, battle and betrayal, but she'd never heard of the Call of Light. This was a decree by Haran Cariendis, beckoning all Hikari monasteries of Yim to ready their light boys for voyage to Starstone. From there, they were trained as Kursaja, thus trebling our ranks, which faced and defeated the Majazaira scum. The light boys looked at each other, their expressions clearly amused at the idea of their kind, fighting Majazaira. In the past few years, we've had reports of strange folk walking among us again. Rumours are rife that a few Majazaira have returned, as was promised upon their fall. Of course, gossip on its own is not enough to ignite action, but these reports coincide with a reading from the stargazers. They will have seen dark things in the future of a strange, unnatural war that will soon wash over Yim. The light boys chatted excitedly. The sand mothers grimaced. It was clear, by their lack of surprise, they were already privy to this information, but found it no less disturbing to be confirmed by a Mastari. Could it be true? Majazaira? Back in Yim? Hiron Yovilus has had his own premonitions too. At the advice of the Hikari Council, he has enacted the Call of Light once again, so if war does befall us, we will be ready. This has caused the Kursaja to journey from town to town, city to city, in an attempt to recruit as many light boys as possible. He spread his arms. So here I come, with the truth of the matter. If you're still unsure, let me state it plain. We come here to bring you to Starstone, where you will have your chance to become Kursaja. It is your choice. We will force no one. What say ye? There was a moment of hesitation as they digested the extraordinary words. Then, in one explosive moment, the light boys erupted. They roared. They cheered. They pumped fists into the air. Shale felt sick to see Alishar join them. Mastari Farin grinned, as if he'd expected nothing less than their full, unflinching commitment. Excellent. Then we will leave immediately, while the winds are strong. Our next stop is Morales. The dark-skinned boy, Nakir, raised a hand. Yes, lad? I have a fleece in my dorm. May I fetch it before we depart? Unfortunately, there will be no taking of personal items. The excitement drained out of the room. Many light boys, including Alishar, visibly balked at this. It seemed unnecessarily harsh, maybe even cruel. All an orphan had were possessions of sentimental value. Shale, for one, could never imagine being parted from either her book or her amulet. Mastari Farin took a knee and placed a hand on Nakir's shoulder. You must understand, my dear boy, I don't say this for the sake of meanness. It serves as a statement on your end. The reason we recruit light boys is because you have no pasts. The reason we keep our visits secret is because we need total, instinctive commitment. You must be willing to abandon your old identity at a moment's notice to fully embrace the Kursaja creed. Think of this as your first test of many in showing you have what it takes to make it. Nakir straightened, 
finding strength in the words. The others nodded, now seeing the sense in this. Once you board the White Nimbus, you will meet Light Server Valfine, who will take your vows this evening. Your service to the Hakari will remain from then, until the Hiron declares Yim safe again. Due to the uncertain nature of Stargazer readings, you must be aware that such service could take anywhere from a few years to the course of your entire lifetime. So consider this your final chance. If you wish to remain here, speak now. Alishar's heel bobbed. Shale's breath caught in her throat as she saw his mouth open and close, but the seconds rolled by and he kept his thoughts to himself. All right then, everyone form up, Mastari Farin said. The light boys, eager to impress, scrambled, bumping into each other and grunting until they formed a muddled unit. The armoured Kursaja stood to their front while Mastari Farin lingered at the back. Then he commanded that they march. The light boys did so, Following the Kursaja down the aisle, light girls Alora and Tarudi opened the vestibule doors, filling the prayer room with glorious sunlight. The townsfolk outside exploded into thunderous applause at the sight of the procession. The light boys and Kursaja marched toward them, disappearing through the wall of sound and light. <laughs>